Hi everyone, hope you're all well. I've got a lovely surprise for you today. I'm going to talk to someone I've known for a long time and he's one of the loveliest men on the planet as well as being one of the most talented. He's a lyricist, an author and has probably written a lot of songs that are your favourites. It is the wonderful Sir Tim Rice. Ah, oh, hello, Tim. How are you? I'm fine, Twigs. I'm in pretty good form for a man of my advanced years. <laughs> oh, you poor old thing. Well, we're all getting up there, aren't we? But listen, we're all still here and we're all, all still doing lots of different things. And that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Especially after this um, couple of years we've had. Well, yes, it hasn't been. I mean, in a way, I've been quite lucky because I was actually down in Cornwall, where I am at the moment, when lockdown uh-huh. began. And it was a very good excuse to stay down and actually just slow down as well and do a few things which didn't require endless meetings and large lunches and all that. I just got myself a dog. So I walked the dog oh. every day. And um, to begin with, it was really quite nice, even though an awful lot of people obviously were having a grim time. I was very lucky. But... Um, it's still going on in a way, and I'm I'm beginning to wonder if it's ever going to end. I know that is the worry, and um, you know a lot of people are behaving like it's gone away, and it, <laughs> it certainly haven't. No. But um, you know, hopefully, with the um, the jabs and you know modern science and people behaving properly, we can we can live with it and cope with it. I hope. Yes, I think we. It's. Silly, really, to think it's going to ever go completely, but I think mm. we can learn to live with it and we will get back to some sort of normality. Also, don't you think, I mean, Lee, Lee who you know I'm married to, we, talk, we talked about it the other week and saying that it's made people rethink their lives and how they want to live and having to slow down and, and isolate. There were some nice things about it as well as the awful things. Yes, I certainly found that. I mean, of course, it's, it's different your reaction, if, if you're, say, my age in your 70s, yeah. or if you're in your 20s, you're going to have a different reaction. And I feel very sorry for the younger people who mm. have been hit with, with all these problems, not their fault at all, which does mean a big hiccup in their lives. But I think, you know, they might with luck, you know, I say to my 22-year-old daughter, I say, well, you know, in 10 years' time, with luck, you'll be looking back on this as a almost like an interesting experience for all the all the the agony that's been caused, it is something which is is typical of life. There are always terrible ups and downs. My parents had to go through a war. Um, nothing, nobody knows what's coming around the corner. That's 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 one no. thing we've learned from Well, we this. Certain did, certainly did. Well, I didn't expect this in a million years, I have to say. No. Although maybe so, people did know that something like this would happen. I don't who know. Who knows? Who knows? Mm, we'll never know. But um, anyway, have you got your cup of tea on a more hopeful note? Well, this you can't is actually, live without a cup of tea. I've got a cup of coffee with me. That's which, allowed. Um, yes. Okay. I've even had guests who've had gin. <laughs> oh, really? Well, yes, at 11 no, o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, I'm having my um, morning cup of coffee. I've taken the dog for a walk today already, so I'm in good form. for. What have you got? What's your doggy? He's a boxer. Sorry, he. I said he. It's bonkers. It's She is a boxer. Oh, she's going to be really upset. Yes, she Calling won't hear her this. Calling her a he. <laughs> oh, is she gorgeous? 
Absolutely. I think all boxers are. I've had boxers yeah. since um, my childhood. Well, my parents had the first one I knew and I was ever since then I've been attached to them. And although I haven't had one continually for all those years, I've had four or five in my life. How many kids you got? Three. Three. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And they're all grown up, presumably. Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, I've got I've got one and a stepson. And um, and now we've got grandchildren popping out, which is yeah, heavenly. I've got, I've got seven grandchildren. Which Have is, you? Yeah, Aww. which is ranging from sixteen down to eight. So so that's 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 quite a handful. It is. Do they ever all come over together? <laughs> yes, in fact, they they were all down here in Cornwall in um, in August this year, and um, they were in great form. They're almost like they're all brothers and sisters. I mean, they 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 come from two families they're all mm -hmm. either nieces and nephews or brothers and sisters but it's like there's seven of them all in the same family oh how lovely they must love coming down to you in cornwall are you near the beach yes we are quite near some beaches but we're actually on the estuary of the river helford which okay. i'm looking at at the moment and so you can swim in that so um in swimming is only a quarter of a mile away and, and there are some lovely beaches where you can surf and swim and do all that. So jazz. you are on the north coast or the south coast? On the south coast. coast. Well, south actually, coast. technically on the Lizard, which oh, is the okay. most the most southerly point of um, Great Britain. Oh, God, you're really far down. Yeah. Because we went to some friends on the north coast near yep. Rock, near yep. around New, there, and that's New, gorgeous. Yeah, New Key, Rock, Padstow, all up there. I, I, I've been there a few times. I don't know that part so well. The south is... Or the far southwest where we are is not not quite as wildly popular with tourists, but we do get a lot, and um, I suppose I'm one in a way sometimes. But um, it's absolutely beautiful. And this summer, with people not being able to travel so much, it was very very crowded, but it was great. You know, some good fun had by all. The weather wasn't phenomenal. It was no, it much, wasn't. Much much better last year. Twenty twenty was. Very I know hot. it was a brilliant summer, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. This no, I agree. Average. I agree. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're well and um, and that you had somewhere nice to go. You know, because like like you, we we were lucky because we just acquired a house in Sussex when oh. COVID hit. So we spent, you know, the first six eight weeks in lockdown, Gosh, settling in. Really, whereabouts we're, in Sussex? We're kind of between Chichester and Arundel, that area. Oh yeah, I know. I was near um, the, you know where Arundel Castle is. That's yes, I was there the other day because I'm a member of the. Well, I've, I've just just retired. Actually, I was a trustee of the Arundel Cricket Foundation. Oh yeah, because you're a huge cricket. Cr yes, fan, I'm a bit of a cricket nut, but <laughs> um, there are one or two very good causes through which cricket can help. Mm -hmm. help people you know kids mainly um there's a chance to shine there's the arundel cricket foundation and and through through cricket and sport and team games and everything it's a very good way of um helping children who otherwise wouldn't have the facilities and i'm often down at arundel you know they have a lot of games there raising money for the cause well next time you're down this this way give us come and have a proper cup of tea i will come and have a proper cup of tea <laughs> and also, a hug <laughs> are we allowed to hug? No, we're, not, we're not we can wave <laughs> <laughs> but I'm often down in Sussex because um, I was at school down there and every time there's a old boys function or whatever. Yeah, you went to Lansing College, Lansing, I yeah, read. I know, is, that really a, made me laugh because that's up the road. Yeah, is, is Lansing near Brighton it, it, and Shoreham? Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's very near Shoreham. It's um, in between Worthing and um, Brighton and very near Shoreham by sea, which we used to go to when we were kids. You could go on a pleasure flight from Shoreham Airport for 10 shillings 
when I was there. Wow, and, that's and that, that, was, that was about almost a whole term's pocket money. Um, so not many boys did it, but it was quite fun. I didn't ever do it, but you could, you know, you, you took off in a plane that probably wouldn't pass any safety tests today. And <laughs> oh, um, it, it was, it was, it was good fun. So that was college, was it? That wasn't school. No, that was school. I oh, was, that was school. Yeah, school. yeah. I was there from the age of thirteen, the three okay. or four years. Yeah. Okay, because I you grew you you were born in Buckinghamshire, correct? I was, and um, I'm now back in back in Buckinghamshire, living quite near Marlow in in a village called Hambledon. Oh, I oh, that's gorgeous, and, Hambledon. Um, I know it well. So I, I've kind of returned to my my roots, although I didn't really grow up in grow up in Buckinghamshire. I grew up in Hertfordshire just down the road from Bucks. So I, I I didn't really go to London even until, or regularly until I was about 18 or 19. I didn't know London at all, even though I was only living 25 miles away from it. It's interesting. I mean, I knew Sussex much better than I, I was at boarding school in Sussex. So I knew Shoreham-by-Sea and Brighton much better than I knew London. Well, I don't think, you know, we're the kind of same generation. And I, I you know, I lived in Northwest London near Wembley football ground. Right. Because we right. from our back garden you could see the Wem- the lovely old Wembley Towers. Yes, yes. That they destroyed sadly. I was hoping they'd save them. But and in our back garden I can remember if I was playing there as a little girl in the fifties if there was a football match on and a goal was scored, you could hear the cheers because right. <laughs> it was kind of over the fields and the yes. housing estates. It was amazing. And I I think we went up up west, as my mum used to call it, probably once a year as a treat. And we'd go to Selfridges, which was amazing as a little girl, and then yeah. go to Lion's Corner House on the corner of Regent Street and Oxford Street and have tea and beans on toast. Exactly. Gosh, I went to Lyons Corner House. I I think I probably did about three trips to London before I was 18. Um, and I definitely, on one of them, went to Lyons Corner House. And then I used to, I mean, it was still there when I became a law student and occasionally popped in there. It was a great treat. You could just have a fry up. It was like having a, a, a second breakfast. I know, um, it was brilliant. Well, I it, thought it was brilliant. No, it was. I mean, and you know, it, and we were probably what is Wembley from the West End is probably what five, six miles. Not, not far. I but mean, we very rarely, you know, we went once a year as a treat. So funny. Yeah, we we were just a bit further away, and um, it was difficult to get up there. Um, I mean, you could go by train, obviously, but um, yeah. it didn't really cross my mind. I mean, London just seemed a long way away, and apart from those very rare trips, we went once to see My Fair Lady. I remember. Um, oh my! That was the first show I went to see. Yeah, and that isn't was... that funny? We sat up in the god, so everyone was minute. <laughs> <laughs> I can't but remember for me, where it we was sat. Amazing. Yes, it was an amazing because I I knew the record. My parents had all the albums of well, not all of them, but a lot of albums of of musicals, and I used to play them a lot. I was also had my own little record collection of Elvis and Cliff and the Shadows and all that, and um, I was really very keen on on the albums of the shows but weirdly I didn't really have any incredible desire to go and see the shows and I was never pestering saying oh I'd love to go and see My Fair Lady or whatever but my father wanted to see that one so we all went up for one special treat on that one but I was such a vinyl junkie I, I loved the actual feel and look of albums and singles and I used to play these West Side Story or South Pacific Oklahoma King and I all these albums without knowing anything about the theatre, just fascinated by the songs and by the records themselves, the actual physical 
grooves and the information on the label and the sleeve notes and all that jazz. I loved all that. Well, that was the beauty of which I still miss today. Although they're coming back is when you got, a, a, you know, a, a big record and you had the photographs and you had the lyrics inside and stories. And I, you know, the album covers, which are great artworks, a lot of them. That's right. As with many other aspects of the music business, changed a lot of things and they led the way with very interesting covers. Their, their second album with the Beatles, so the four black faces mm -hmm. in sort of half light. I mean, it was a brilliant cover and you could just look at that cover and you'd get to know each, you, you, you felt you knew each of the four lads, even though they were so... Yeah remote and so famous i mean you probably met them at the time but um well i did actually i mean i met all of them but the only one who became close close friend was paul and still is to this day i'm happy to say right because he's such a lovely apart from being a genius he's he's a really nice man isn't he yes um, I mean, i've i've been lucky enough to meet him several times i actually interviewed him once on one of his albums um mccartney too and uh, he asked me to chat to him, rather like I'm chatting to you now. Yeah. And, and uh, we had a, a half an hour conversation talking about the album mainly. And that was great. And I, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a close personal friend, but I do know him um, quite well. And I'm, yeah. I obviously admire him enormously. I mean, the impact he had on so many lives, Absolutely. including mine, was, was phenomenal. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, the fact that he is so down to earth and he is a lovely man and he is a lovely friend you know it's just amazing when you think what they went through and yeah. how it could have changed him in another way exactly. as we know it has with some people in the world <laughs> it's it's very it must be very hard to cope with that sort of adulation and fame and the, the fact that he he's come out of it you know almost unaffected is it is, is, it, is, is, it, is, is it is or, or if he has been affected he's been affected for for good yeah um so Good bully for him. 100%. So when you were playing these records as a, was this like a teenager or a little yeah, the, boy? Yeah, the, the, first, the first pop record I ever bought was Singing the Blues by Tommy Steele. Oh, I remember which, it which, well. I, which, I, which I had on a 78. And then somebody, I don't think it was me, but some member of the family managed to break it, sat on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I... Almost the second record I bought was an EP, which was virtually unbreakable. And it had four tracks on it, including Singing the Blues. And um, that that was really the beginning of my love of rock and roll. Tommy Steele was a very important figure in British pop music. So what 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 year was that? Was that? 57. I say that's but, early because my first record, when I was six, my best friend, who was also, she had a sixth birthday party and, and the first record that we bought each other for our birthdays because they were close was Cliff Richard's Living Doll. Oh, right. Well, that was 59. I, 59. Was that 59? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't. Yeah, well, so I'd be, oh, I was older than six then. I, I remembered it at six, but I was 10 because I was born in 49. Because I can remember going to her house and we both had the same dr party dresses on, but mine was pink and hers, hers was blue. And we stood on <laughs> her mum's dining table and danced to Living Doll. Right. <laughs> 
Well, that, that that was a great record written by the wonderful Lionel Bart, who was um, I didn't realize that. that. That's amazing. Yeah, and it was also interestingly Lionel Bart wrote quite a lot of Tommy Steele's hits as well, and um, so I I was aware of the name Bart well before um, Oliver came out, and um, he of course moved into musicals, but he also wrote a lot of pop hits, Lionel. I mean, he wrote things like Rock with a Caveman and Handful of Songs and Butterfingers for Tommy Steele. That was a lovely song. Then he wrote Living Doll, which was number one. A great song. And he also wrote Do You Mind for Anthony Newley. That was another number one. Would I say I love you? That's it. Do you mind? Do you mind? There's a finger snapping in it. Yeah. That's it. Do you mind? I remember it well. You take me back, Tim. (laughs) And he wrote Things Ain't What They Used To Be was a big hit for Max Bygraves. Oh, yeah, that, that, that came from goodness. the show. He wrote Easy Going Me for Adam Faith. And, of course, he wrote Oliver, which had a lot of hits in it. I mean, what a great score. Um, Amazing. And, you know, I never saw Oliver first time out. I mean, that was, again, I, I knew the album, but never saw the show. I've seen it since, but um, and it's wonderful. But it was strange that I had no, no desperate desire to go and see a show even though I loved the music. But when I met Andrew in 65, by which time I was 21, Andrew was such a theatre fanatic and he was determined to go and see everything. I mean, he did go and he was then only 17, but he'd seen everything that was on and, and going right back about four or five years before. And um, I began going to shows with him and I thought, I'll, I'll give it a go. He was very keen to find someone to write words to his music. He'd written about eight shows already when he was 17. And were you already writing? No, not really. I mean, how did he know that you could well, actually, it's do good what you do so brilliantly? Well, I, I, I did write some lyrics in, in 1964. I'd just left school. I'd bought a guitar. We had a pop group at school and, I, and, and we did Cliff and the Shadows stuff because this is just before the Beatles. This has been 61, 62. We, we, we played at school concerts. We weren't very good, but we were the only guys in the school who had electric guitars and drums. And I didn't have either. Actually, when I say drums, the drummer had a drum. (laughs) It was one, (laughs) it was one drum and um, humdrum. And uh, that was Mike Saunders on drums. And uh, a guy called Pete Remine was on lead guitar. His hero was Hank B. Marvin. And he, and he was really quite, quite a good guitar player. And he had an acoustic guitar with a pickup, which made it sound electric. And Henry Spear was on bass and Jeff Strong was on guitar. And um, I, I didn't really play very much. I could do a few chords on the piano, but I was, I was the sort of cliff of the outfit. I would, I, would, I would sing, gee whiz, it's you, and the others would join in. But we also did Everly Brothers. We did all this sort of stuff. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing from what I hear you cry. But when I left school, I was still mad keen on the pop business. And by this time, the Beatles and the Stones were, were getting going. And I, I wrote one or two songs on my guitar, simple songs, bit Donovan-ish. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying Donovan's simple. His songs are wonderful, but they were they were straightforward, semi-folky country mm-hmm. folk rock almost. And lovely, I love all that. But but I wrote them not really because I wanted to be a songwriter, but because I wanted to sell my voice. And I thought if I do songs that somebody else has done, I'll be compared unfavorably to whoever that is. There's no point in me doing a Mick Jagger number or a Tom Jones number or Donovan number because they're going to say it's not as good as Mick. Or, or, <laughs> but if I do a song that no one else has ever done, they can't say somebody else did it better. So I wrote three songs, words and music, and I made a tape of them. 
And I sent this tape off to all the record companies. And most of them, of course, or well, there weren't that many record companies in those days, but I didn't get any response from any of the companies Aww. until, oh, wait, that's a happy ending. Um, <laughs> because uh, I got a call from a music publisher who, as you know, the people who look after the copyrights rather yep. than, the, than the recordings, a chap called Cyril G of Mills Music. And he said, we've been sent this tape and we don't like the voice, but we like one of the songs and we might be able to get someone to record it. And then he said, did the singer write the songs? And, you know, what's the setup? And I said, oh, no, 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 the singer, you know, the singer's not very good, but I wrote the songs and I didn't confess that I was actually the singer as well. And one of the songs got recorded. And it was recorded by a band called The Night Shift, who were on a proper label. They were on Pie Piccadilly. And it came out. It was released. And I, I was, in a, in a rather roundabout way, it was through being a struggling songwriter and hawking that record around. And that was a flop. But I met Andrew, who was um, introduced to me by a book publisher. It's getting a bit complicated, so I won't go into too many details. But... <laughs> Andrew was also doing the same sort of thing with pop songs, but he really wanted to do the theatre. And and when I went round to see him, having been introduced um, by letter, I discovered that he was absolutely obsessed with musical theatre and furthermore was very good at it, even though he was only 17. And um, he said, well, I've written a show on the life of Dr. Bernardo, which he had, and he'd done it at school, but he'd now left oh. school he was, and he was going to university and, and he wanted somebody to write... Um, the lyrics, because the chap who'd written the lyrics at school with him, and they weren't bad at all, but didn't want to go on with trying to be a musical theatre person. It was just a hobby for him. Mm -hmm. He went off to do something insane, like becoming a doctor. And um, uh, Andrew wanted to <laughs> Andrew wanted to become a Richard Rogers or Lionel Bart. And I thought, well, I was always quite good at writing poems and silly essays at school. And I said, well, I'll give it a go. And I did have the knowledge of all these albums of my parents. And I began going to see shows with Andrew. And we wrote, I wrote the lyrics to his entire score of The Likes of Us, which was the name of his Bernardo musical. And it, it was good in the sense that it showed us we could work together. And his tunes were pretty good. My words, they were okay. The funny ones were quite good. The more lovey-dovey ones weren't, were a bit, bit corny. But it showed us we could work together. But the overall idea was rather old-fashioned and, and frankly, a bit of a lift of Oliver because it was set in Victorian London and lots of, you know, kids and everything. And it, it was very much Oliver, but sub-Oliver. And we, we, we had an agent who was trying to get this on and he kept saying, it's going to go to the West End, it's going to go to Broadway, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, it didn't. But while we were not getting to the West End, we were invited by a schoolmaster who'd heard our show. He said, well, why not write something for my school kids to sing for their end of term concert, just to keep, you know, keep your hand in. So we did. And that was Joseph. And of course, Joseph was the thing that got us going. I oh mean, it, it was a big hit, big hit school concert. And this was 1968, by which time I was working at EMI Records, having failed to be a law student. And, and, and every so often, and it happened to me, weirdly the other day twice within five minutes but every so often about once every five years some bloke aged about 65 comes up to me and says Tim Rice I was in the Joseph school choir when I was eight and we Aww. did Joseph on the on the first of March 1968 and um it's great to you know it, it was it was really our first public performance anywhere of our work 
And even though it was one school concert, that that just grew from there and eventually became a show and got us a management and, contract. And, and how? Yeah, in the end, <laughs> oh yes. God. It took a while. I mean, has it ever not been playing somewhere, Joseph? Well, I mean, it you, seems wherever you go in the world, there's a production somewhere. Yes, I do apologise to listeners. There's no escape from it. But, oh, um, don't say it, that. It, it's, it's wonderful. It's funny because it, it for the first four or five years of its life, it was really only done in schools and that was fine that was all we'd written it for and we frankly only wrote it for one school we were amazed that it got round to almost every school in the country in the end but frank dunlop a great director who's still with us and lives in new york saw him not long ago just before covid i'm really looking forward to seeing him again frank rang up and said would it be all right if he did joseph with with grown-up performers at the edinburgh festival and we said fine and we sort of forgot about it and then about two months later, there was a rave review of Joseph in one of the, one of the papers at the Edinburgh Festival. And we, we had no idea it was, it was going to be so big. And we rushed up there to see it. And it was very funny. And from there, it went to the West End. And it still took a lot of time to really break through. But um, it, it then had two simultaneous careers. It hasn't, it hasn't done badly since. No, no, it's done very well. <laughs> no, it's, it, it, it ultimately became a very big commercial yeah. show as well as but it's still in a funny way however good the productions are the joseph um you know professional ones and a lot of them have been very good i still like it best when i see kids doing it because it was written for oh. children yeah and, that's lovely you know if i if i can i do go to one of one or two joseph school productions part of anything else they're usually quite short yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you go to a to a Joseph anywhere else you, they, they, they always do it about twice they they encore every number because it's quite a short show and uh they do every number twice and then almost the whole show again in the encore which is oh, great the, the crowd that's... love it but if you if you've heard it 248,000 times you think oh <laughs> <laughs> when you were writing in the beginning with Andrew did, how did it work did did he write the music and then give you the score and you write the lyrics or did you sit in a room together and well i think or, what or i did found did you give him lyrics or no it was um the key thing we we both discovered with any musical is that you've got to get the story right first you've got to have you've got to know what you're talking about yeah you you ha- you, you have to have an outline and that usually was 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 my job not in the case of bernardo and and of course in the um but joseph which is a great bible story my favorite one as a kid my job really initially was to say well the first song will be introducing the brothers the second song will be about his coat or whatever and andrew would obviously chip in on that and he'd have to agree so having got the story worked out each scene by scene andrew would then write a tune or piece of music that fitted the mood of that scene. So he'd know whether he was writing a crowd scene or a fight or a love song or whatever. And then I would put words to the music. So it was plot, music, lyrics. That was, generally speaking, the way we did it. I mean, sometimes I might come up with a title which would affect his his composition of his tune, or I might occasionally do a few words, particularly in a Vita. Some of the Vita was written the other way around. Not not very much. Most of the main songs were all idea, tune, lyrics. But that that's that's the way it works. And if people ask me for advice on musicals, I would say, well, the first rule is there are no rules. The second rule is nobody knows anything. And the third rule is 
get your story right first. If you know what your story is, you, you know, then, and, and it has a, has a beginning and a middle and an end, then, then you can plot it properly. It's difficult, obviously, with some of these jukebox musicals when they're just sticking a load of songs together. Sometimes it works, as Mamma Mia did, but often it doesn't. However good the songs, I mean, there've been musicals based around Sergeant Pepper, there've been musicals based around the Beach Boys, and they haven't really worked. And the songs could not be better. I mean, brilliant songs by, you know, Brian Wilson or by Lennon McCartney. But unless you have a great story, it won't work as a show. And, no, you're um, right, actually. I mean, That's true. And, and there was even a Bob Dylan one on Broadway, I think. I didn't even see it. It didn't run very long. But but then there was another Bob Dylan one, which was really good, Girl from the North Country, which was was brilliant. That was that was magnificent. But that And also, they that wasn't obsessed with doing just hits the, the, and, and they did them all in a different way it's very difficult to have finished songs before you have a, a plot and it can be done as girl from the north country and um mamma mia have proved but it's difficult it's always best to begin with a storyline and then say right let's get the songs in there now so was evita the next one after joseph or no, was superstar. jesus christ, jesus superstar christ yeah. came in between yeah i mean Superstar, that, really. that, other, that other little show. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that was the one that really got us going. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. I remember when I first saw that, it blew me sideways. Well, amazing. thank you. I mean, it was, it was, but that was weird because, I mean, I'm just getting my chronology correct, but we'd, we'd, we'd done quite well with Joseph, but only on a sort of modest schools level. And we'd, the best thing was that we got ourselves a manager Dick Chuck or David Land and his partner Sefton Myers, they 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 supported us and enabled us to spend all our time writing. I was able to quit my job. Andrew never had a job, so he was fine, happy. And um <laughs> uh he'll get a job one day, I'm sure. Um and and uh but the first thing we decided to have a go at was the story of Judas Iscariot, which had been something I'd been interested in for years and years and years, ever since school days. I thought, Judas Iscariot, he's a interesting character because he's absolutely crucial to the whole Christianity existence but his motives and and his character are not hardly mentioned in the Bible he's just there as a figure of evil as it were and I can't believe that that he was just that he must have had motives and that and then Bob Dylan had that wonderful line um in with god on our side where he sings i can't think for you you'll have to decide whether judas iscariot had god on his side and, and then you think oh wow um sung by the magnificent paul jones of manfred mann who i'm seeing uh, very shortly oh the, say manfreds, hello. the manfreds are touring and my I'm, I'm i'm very good friends with both paul and and um, mike darbo who i've known for yonks oh, and, and well the, i used to know paul he when years and years ago i did um on the BBC, I did one of those musical half-hour shows like Scylla did. Bless yeah, her. I remember those. And they were Lulu great. And Lulu did, and I did. And you had a lot show. of hit songs too. Yeah, great. and Paul came on. Well, he's... And we did a couple of period songs together, yeah. which was quite nice. He's such a nice man. He's We've a... kind of lost touch, but do give him well, I will. Love. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping... I mean, I go and see the Manfreds whenever they come on because I'm, I know them so well. I know I'll have so to well. get him on my podcast. Yeah, yes, no, he'd be great. <laughs> he Mike would. Darbo, Mike Darbo is another very funny, um, entertaining chap, and you know he wrote um, handbags and glad rags and build me up buttercup, and he he was oh on, I know I he know. was on Mighty Quinn and all that. Anyway, I've now completely forgotten what I was 
ranting on oh, about. Oh, sorry. Oh, I, no, no, I, no, no, no. It's interesting. This is this is a proper conversation. It's like, yes, you know. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like we're at dinner and somebody says, pass the salt, and then you've completely lost track of what, <laughs> what you're the, saying. What, 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 no, I was, I was just saying about Superstar, if, if, yeah. if, you're, still, if, if you're still with me. Um, I am. That as a result of... of um, doing Joseph at St. Paul's Cathedral. We met the Dean of St. Paul's and we, we mentioned this idea about Judas and he said, well, go for it, you know, if it's treated seriously or, you know, and and for the right reasons, it, it, it could work. And we we began writing this this piece. Originally, it was just called Jesus Christ. And it was about, or, or we, we, we toyed with the idea of calling it Judas Iscariot. We thought that that might not work. But it, but it is really, Judas is, is in a way the key figure but our managers could not get any theatrical producer interested. This is 1969, said, no, 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 we can't touch religion. The kids aren't interested. It's a rotten idea. But we were able to get a record deal on it. And that was the best thing that could have happened because if we'd gone straight to a theatre, if somebody had put it on and said, right, I'll take a punt with you lads, we would have been in an out-of-town theatre, you know, for three weeks and we wouldn't have been able to have a rock band with an orchestra and it, it, the, the technology and just wasn't there. But when we had a record deal and we were able to do an album, we could use all the forces. We didn't have to worry about the sets and how many people in the cast or lighting and all that. We just had to worry about the music and it could be really rock. And it, it is a great rock album. And it came, it out, is, yeah. came out in 1970. And we, we, we were still basically totally unknown, despite Joseph doing okay. And uh, it was released in England and didn't do very much. I mean, admittedly, it was only after two weeks, but we felt after two weeks it had probably flopped. But the American record company said they wanted us to come over and help promote it. And we were thrilled. We thought, well, the sh it's obviously not going to be a hit, but we're going to free trip to America. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so it was very exciting. <laughs> and um, we went over there and it was extraordinary. The MCA record company over there had done a fantastic job and and of course I'm if I may say so, it's quite a good record. And, oh, quite and, a good record. It's bloody brilliant. I remember that coming out. Yeah, it went amazing. to number one in, yeah, in, in America amazing. almost in about three or four weeks. And it knocked off I think it knocked George Harrison off number one, which I felt terribly embarrassed by because I was such a fan <laughs> of George Harrison. Oh. I I don't think I mean I, I didn't really know George. I did meet him once or twice, but um it was a great album and um I I was a bit worried about mixing on the charts with all these so extraordinary was, people. So was that reaction to that, was that like the beginning of the mega stardom that you both were flown well, into? Well, in a way, it was, a, it, was, it was the beginning of our mega success. Um, and the album was a huge record in 1971, mm -hmm. mainly in America. It was a hit also in lots of other countries, but took a while to get going here. And shows followed. The Broadway show was okay. It didn't didn't run as long as we expected, but the London show ran much longer than we thought. So we had kind of the reverse. You know, I mean, the, in in Britain the record didn't do much, but the show was massive. In America, the record was massive, and the show was okay. Um, but it's now settled down after fifty years, with lots of productions um, have have happened over the years. I mean, hundreds, I would say. And and again, it's gone to schools, which is great. And um, it, it's just one of those things which I think everybody, even if they're not Christian, even if whatever their religion, everybody has an interest in Jesus. By that, I mean, even if they don't believe a word of, of, of anything to do with Christianity or disapprove of it even, they still, it's such a huge 
cultural aspect of, of, of our lives, mm-hmm. that, that people are intrigued by it. They're intrigued by what anybody might have to say about it. Did you have any major backlash well, by bit. doing it? But from the church? Yes, or... we certainly had one or two strange protests um, in America. Nothing, mm-hmm. I'm glad to say, as far as I'm aware, violent or unpleasant. But we had a lot of letters um, saying this is sacrilege and why did you not mention the resurrection? Mm-hmm. Um, but we pointed out that it was Jesus seen through the eyes of Judas Iscariot, who was dead by the time the resurrection allegedly took place. And uh, we, we also, but for every hate mail we got, we I, we had literally a thousand fan letters. I mean, there were so many coming into MCA. We'd, we'd, we'd just shown into a room and there was a pile of, envelopes and cards and things. This is all pre-email, of course. I'm mighty glad it was pre-email. Can you imagine the stick we would have got in the email? <laughs> <laughs> on social media, yeah, can oh, you imagine? God. Oh, my goodness. And, um, it, it was, as wonderful as it is, no, sometimes it's I know. better without it. Oh, telling me. But, I mean, a lot of people wrote to us and said, it's made me look at the Bible in a new light. And, I'm, you know, and, and there were a lot of people who we, we kind of encouraged their belief, which is fine. I mean, we weren't saying, you know, you've, you've got to believe this or you, mm. you, you you must not believe this. We were just telling a story. And that's, if I was going to say another rule for writing musicals is don't preach. Don't don't make your message obvious. Don't, don't get up and say, you know, this musical is all about this and you've got to believe this because this is our message. Tell the story truthfully and messages will come out and people will get different messages, which is fine, which is in life, you know, people have different views about the same thing and that's how it should be so superstar was a very educational process for us and at the same time we were like sort of rock stars monkey we were we were quite famous our work was as but we well, also there were, but we weren't that uh, famous uh, ourselves we weren't really yeah, but known. there were a, a few hit singles that yeah came yeah out of that. i mean i don't know how to love him is still one of my greatest yeah, yeah that that's that's a so, nice song. my favorite songs oh it breaks my heart I recorded that actually on an album. I know, it's so I got it. Gorgeous. I got it. Oh, have you? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I just wanted to do it because I love it so much. My other favorite, I mean, I love so many, but my other big, big favorite of yours is I Know Him So Well. Yes, that was but, Chess oh, from Chess. That amazing. Was yes, they're both songs. That's such a brilliant song. Well, they're all written from a woman's point of view, which I'm, I'm not sure yeah. I'd be allowed to do that now. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh please don't stop doing that. <laughs> but but, it is but people people um I mean one of the people have said how do you I mean obviously a lot of people don't like the songs but those who do have said how do you know what a woman thinks well of course I don't but and of course it's it's all observation but I but I I think it's absolutely insane to say that you can only write from your own experience because sometimes by standing back from somebody else's life Absolutely. You, you know, I mean, if you see somebody whose life is is not going well, and and they've got major problems, somebody who has not actually had those problems can sometimes, not always, be the best person to help, and can see them from a distance without being involved. Well, I I think one of my dearest oldest friend, who's sadly not with us anymore, and colleagues was John Schlesinger, the director, brilliant. Oh, director. I, I, I and him I a think. I think he made one of the best American-based movies in Midnight Cowboy, and he was oh, so fantastic. English. You couldn't be more English than John. But no, his view of New York and that underbelly yep. of New York and, you know, Dustin and, and John Voigt were brilliant. But 
his his it was like an outsider seeing America in a different light than an American would have done. I think you're so and right. I think that's that's a very good example. And you know, with someone like I, you know, one one a writer or an, or a singer or an actress or whatever has to be able to put their own spin on something, and 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 you can often make points much more strongly than if you're only writing about yourself. I mean, it seems to me, you know, this is an old man griping, but it seems to me that <laughs> an awful lot of popular songs these days, some of which are very good, but they're all totally about me, me, me. It's my problems, what I do, this, that, and the other. And very few hits these days seem to me to be standing back and, 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 and observing with a, with a sort of relaxed and detached eye. Mm, Not literally detached, of course, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think you're right with Midnight Cowboy, particularly a brilliant film. But I know him so well, I was trying to put myself in the position of two different ladies. And yeah. um, I think it worked because it was it was um, very, oh. very popular song. Good tune as well. The lyrics, they kill you, the lyrics. It's like, oh, my God, it's like, oh, gosh. oh being well, in love with that. But anyway, I, it's one of my... And I have told a sweet little story about Don't Cry For Me, Argentina which is another of my favourite songs. But when Lee's son, who is now in his mid-40s, when he was a little boy, he used to sing, Don't Cry For Me, Auntie Tina. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that sweet? Oh, great. So whenever I hear it, it always get, puts a smile on my face. <laughs> I didn't know him then. He was eight when I met him, but when he was really little, <laughs> when he was about five. I remember the goodies did a, a spoof quite soon after the record was a hit and they had a two ladies in the in an office in the typing pool again that's probably illegal these days but um and and, and, and they were called marge and tina and it was a very labored sketch very funny with with, with the goodies building up to these these say don't cry for me marge and tina and 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 I thought Brilliant. the fact that that song is now being parodied within six months of it coming out and people will get the joke means that it's really is a hit. Yeah, they didn't um, smash it. So I good. also read, I was, I was so impressed that you've got an... Well, you've probably got more than one, but you've got Emmy, Oscar, Grammy and... To you've, got the, you've got the four biggies. Have you got one of each or two of each or...? <laughs> or you can't count. Uh, well, I, <laughs> you could make them into a headdress, Tim. Well, well, well you them. could with the Emmy. The Emmy, <laughs> the Emmy is a vicious-looking thing. It weighs about half a ton, and 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 it's got these angel angel wings, which are That's lethal right. spikes. Actually. Have you got an Emmy? I'm sure you've got. I haven't. Uh, I haven't. Well, I got the Emmy for allegedly producing the a, a recent version of Jesus Christ Superstar, which um, I was an executive producer on. And um, okay. um, it won for, I mean, the Emmys are for TV in in, in, in yeah. America. And we should explain the Tonys are for theatre. The Broadway theatre. The theater. Oscars are for Movies film. And Grammys are for music. Right. So. Yeah, but, uh, and you've got the lot. Apparently, do you know only 16 artists in the, in the world have got those? Awful. I know. Well, it's... It, yes, you're an elite group. Andrew and I are very <laughs> lucky. Yeah. Um, yes. What can one say? I'm, I'm, uh, one shouldn't pay too much attention to awards, but if you're going to, oh, they're very nice. But, but if you get them, it's nice. Yeah. But, yes, but, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, or it doesn't. And did did you enjoy? Best. I mean, you got you got the nod much sooner than I did. But did you enjoy your day at the palace? 
Yeah. And was it Queen Elizabeth who knighted you? It was, yes. I oh, was, yes. was she? I, I love her, actually. No, no, no. I, I got Prince Charles, but who's nice? He was nice to well, me. Well, but... um, no, I was very lucky. Um, had her, her Majesty. It's quite funny because um, I don't know if it's the same for ladies, but um, before we went on, we were all told about kneeling. You know, there's going to be a, a, a gadget that you kneel on, a sort of special thing. And I was always quite confident. I mean, I, I you know, I thought, well, for the last 50 years, I've been, I've known how to kneel. But as soon as I have, once I was given instructions, I then began to panic. And I thought, <laughs> which, which way round do I go? And, and, and you walk up to this sort of, you know, stool like thing. And you think, where do I put my, you know, ter- terrified of getting it wrong. But I didn't actually fall over, which would have been dodgy. No, but... uh, that's, well, I wore flat shoes on purpose because I was so nervous. Yes. And they told me that. When you leave, you have to walk backwards, you know, because yes. you mustn't turn your back on. I know. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, if I wear, and I'm terrible in high heels, I wobble. So I thought, if, if I wear high heels, I'm going to go I know. over I'm, backwards. I'm, so I wore flat shoes. I was very sensible. Very wise. And a very nice trouser suit. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so if you did fall over, that would be all right as well. I'd, yes, be, I'd, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be safe. Yes, i I, I don't think I wore high heels. I can't remember. But, but, <laughs> but it was no, it was great fun. I loved my day. My, I took my my mum and dad weren't around, sadly, because they would have loved it. But I took my eldest, two elder sisters, and my eldest one cried through the oh, whole thing. <laughs> great. I mean, everybody thinks of you. What well, think of you as, as as Twiggy, icon of our of our times? But <laughs> I, I, are you sort of called Dame Twiggy or Dame? Leslie, isn't it? Well, officially, because my passport is Leslie, yeah. officially I am Dame Leslie Lawson. And that's right. what they announced on the day. But they said to me after the announcement, you can... Because I said, you know, nobody... The only people who call me Leslie are my sisters. Right, right. And Lee occasionally. Um, but, when, he's, when he's angry. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but um, but everyone calls me Twig, you know, Twig yeah. or Twiggy. And also I thought Dame Twiggy sounded quite cute i think it sounds fantastic it's terrific <laughs> it just really when i got the envelope well at first we thought it was a tax demand <laughs> and then i ripped it open and thinking oh god what have we done what have we done and then i i kind of misread it and i you know i thought i was very thrilled but i thought it was a you know a, a, a cbe or something yeah and i rang this lady there was a number saying if you've got any questions yeah. i rang her and i said is this right is, is this a seat and i was a bit shaky because you know they don't tell you do they no, they don't no, warn you no. and she said no it's a damehood and i went oh my god she said are you sitting down i said yeah she said why don't you go and make yourself a nice gin and tonic <laughs> <laughs> great great it was so funny but anyway, it was a lovely, I love lovely day at the palace. Aye, it aye, no, it, it was. I enjoyed it too. It's a it's quite a sunny day, if I remember. And they, and they, and they, there was a band playing during the ceremony. That's right. And they, and they played extracts from the Sound of Music. I remember they, they did not play anything from Vita or Superstar. I didn't mind at all. I was quite happy to hear this. <laughs> quite happy to hear Richard Rogers. <laughs> I got, I got one which I emailed because he's a friend, Hugh Jackman. I got. The, uh, one of the songs from The Greatest Showman. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. That, that... And I, I, t- I said, I've just got, I've just got my medals, <laughs> and I walked on to you, one of your songs. Great, which is great. Really funny. But you know, before we wrap up, obviously, the other huge influence you've had in the world is with doing all the Disney stories, Aladdin and the Lion, the Lion King. 
Yeah. Did which one came first? Well, confusingly, in a way, The Lion King, which actually as a film came out after Aladdin, but I was working at Disney on this gamble, they all thought it was, of this story of this lion. It was like Hamlet with fur, it was explained to me. Um <laughs> And I'd suggested Elton John for the music, which they very kindly allowed me to choose somebody. Um, I didn't. I, I didn't think Elton would do it, but but um, but he did, which I think was. I think the best thing I did for Disney was to suggest Elton John for The Lion King, because they said you can have anybody, but you can't have Alan Menken because he's working on Aladdin, and Alan Menken, who's a brilliant composer, was at that point working with the great Howard Ashman, the lyricist, on Aladdin, and they were about a year ahead of us. Because they were, they'd been Little Mermaid, then Beauty and the Beast, which had just come out, and which nothing to do with me at that point, and then Aladdin, which Alan was working on, and then Lion King, which we were working on, but we were about a year behind. These things take two or three years to 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 mature, and um, and then tragically, Howard Ashman died. He was a brilliantly talented lyricist, and um, he he hadn't finished Aladdin. And and I was working on Lion King, and, and the and the Disney bosses said, "Forget Lion King for three or four weeks, or even you know, six weeks. We need you urgently to come and finish off Aladdin with Alan, who I hadn't met at that point." So I, I I was moved studios, met Alan. We got on very well, and um, the first song we wrote together was "A Whole New World," which was a pretty <laughs> pretty good start. So it was it was all, it was all downhill from there. <laughs> but I but I wrote to. Two or three songs for the movie, which came out pretty pronto after we'd written the final songs, and the film was a big hit, and amazingly, Whole New World won won me an Oscar. So I then went back to Lion King as the most, in a way, the most junior person in the Disney setup. But I actually but you had an got Oscar, an Oscar yes. honey. You got an Oscar, so, uh, <laughs> which, which 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 was quite good for my confidence, I think. And, oh, yeah. um, and, quite right. And 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 then. Lion King came out the following year. So were you living in California when I, you were doing that? Well, I, yes, I was there an awful lot. I, I I got to one point where I'd been in this, um, I was staying in, in, in the Four Seasons Hotel, which was pretty good, but I, I I thought if I'm here so much and I've got Aladdin and the Lion King and I might do another one, maybe I should look for a property, not to buy, but to rent. And this real estate agent took me on a tour of... Um, of, of LA properties. I didn't want anything phenomenal. I just wanted a nice place where I could work and lock up when I wasn't there. And we we found one to rent and Disney had agreed because it was probably cheaper than the hotel. They did, they did, they'd, they'd agreed to pay the rent. We went around on the Monday morning to sign the deal with this guy in this. So it was a nice bungalow on Outpost Drive, I remember. Oh, I know Outpost. And, and, and it, was, it was just a very nice house, you know, one floor, not not massive. It had a little pool, and I thought, great, I can be a Californian megastar or pretend I am. And <laughs> when we got there on the Monday to sign the deal for however many dollars a week, he said, "Well, I changed my mind. I'm, I'm going to sell it. It's yours for three million dollars or something." And I said, "Well, I don't want to buy it." And that was it. And I I'd been around so many properties with with this good lady, and I thought I can't be bothered. I'll stay in the hotel. <laughs> so I never really. Um, well, I, I didn't have a property there, but but, but, there, but but I was there so much for, for three or four years. I, I I felt I was living there, and I enjoyed it. I mean, it was it was mm. nice to get to know the place quite well. Yeah, I mean, I've lived there in two, twice in you know right a long periods. I mean, I've gone in and out loads of time, but I've lived there in the early seventies. And then the early 90s, I did a sitcom there for a couple of years. Oh, right. And it's actually a, a lovely, 
my daughter was like 13, 14 at the time, which was lovely for her. Because I'm sure. It was pre-grown-up teenage, which I think I'd have worried about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All those freeways. And, yeah. But she was still a, kind of a little a young teenager. So she loved it, the swimming pools and the sunshine. And, and I loved doing the show. Because when you're working there, they really are lovely to you and look after you, don't they, in America? Yeah, no, it, it, was, it, was, it was great. And, and uh... I mean, like me, America's been very wonderful for you, hasn't it? Well, I'm... I remember seeing you on Broadway. Um, uh, I did, <laughs> and, and um, with with Tommy Tune, dear old Tommy. Yes, yeah. and and yeah, we did that for eighteen months. That was great. I remember my one and only. I remember well, we had quite good music in the Gershwins. Yeah, oh, it was lovely. Um, <laughs> was it was it Boy Wanted? Boy Wanted? Was it? Yeah, Boy Wanted and soon yes. we, we they we joined them up. And how long has this been going on? Yes. It's wonderful. We did the water dance. Do you remember? That was the yes. first time a tap dance had been done in water. It was and a, we used to soak the front front two rows every <laughs> night. <laughs> it was a great show. I wasn't in the front two rows. I remember really I'm enjoying glad. it. And 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 oh, you, thank you. You were terrific. I, I, there was a scene with you on a swing, wasn't there? Yeah, I can't remember what I sang to that. But um, I can't remember. But, but um, anyway, it was an interesting. It was yeah. I was I was very com- well. At the time we did it, Tommy was a very big Broadway director. Yeah. And um, I'd done the boyfriend with him in ten years before yes. the film. Yes, of course. So he, and when he, I was like, when he rang me to say we were going to do this one on Broadway, I thought it was going to be a film because that's what we tried to get going after the boyfriend. And he rang me and said, um, "I've got our, I've got our project going." And I said, "Oh, great! When do we start filming?" And he said, "No, no, it's <laughs> it's it's on on Broadway." And I said, "Oh, oh my goodness!" I, I can't do that. And he said, there's no such word as can't. Pack your bags and get out to New York. Great. And he was right. I mean, I had been on stage, but I hadn't done anything that massive. And the thought of it was terrifying. But it just shows you if you trust and believe in someone, as I did in Tommy, I knew he'd look after me. I knew he was incredibly talented. And we had Mike Nichols as co-director, the divine wonderful mike nichols yes so if you're in those sort of hands and you trust people and if you think well if they think i can do it maybe maybe i can when when you first rose to fame did you did you were your ambitions to sing and act and and dance i was a really shy quiet little girl i think my dream at that point there was a distant dream of being a model because I my I loved I had Jean Shrimpton all over my wall. Right. I remember lovely yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah. Jean, but I would never have pursued it because I was so shy, and I was still at school. I was only sixteen, remember? And did you have to leave school pretty pronto yeah, when you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, because it literally happened kind of overnight. Yeah. You know, the haircut, the you know, I, I you know I've told the story so many times, but um, I, but I didn't plan to do it, and probably that's why. I went. I went with the flow, kind of thing. Yes, but but you know. but, it, but it's. I mean, don't take this the wrong way. But people were amazed in in a in a in a in a very complimentary way that somebody who was an incredibly world famous model turned out to be a brilliant actress and singer as well. Oh, well, thank and, you. And 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 I mean, I thought, good heavens, this this beautiful woman can can sing and dance with the best. And and it was almost <laughs> like the the modelling had been something which had just happened. And and your your so. your talent, but of course you need incredible talent for modelling. I'm sure I've never been approached myself. Well, to I, model. I, you need to be you need to be photogenic, yeah. and you need to kind of know what you're doing. But but it's not like acting and singing and dancing. But, but 
when was the point when somebody said to you, Tweaks, let's have a go, you know, why don't you make a record? Why don't you? It was, it was, it was really the person who changed my life that way was Ken Russell. Really? Because, yeah, he did The Boyfriend with me in 1969. Yeah, and, and, and before that, you hadn't really done anything. I, to tell, yeah, I had, I'd gone into, because, you know, you know, when you become very, very well known, you get everyone at, you know, they, they, yeah. they did a Twiggy doll, they did a Twiggy lunchbox, they, you know, <laughs> we had them, they were coming out of left, right, you know, like that happens if you're suddenly very famous. And I was offered a record deal. And I think I did a really awful record because I was so nervous. I can't remember what it was called. But it you was... had hits, though. You had quite a few hits. Mm, yeah, later. Yeah. When oh, I had a proper record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because after I did The Boyfriend, which was a musical, obviously, Sandy Wilson, um, I got a proper record deal and, and I did, yeah, I did about four pop albums. Yeah. That did, did, did quite well. They did. They were jolly good. Yeah. <laughs> but, they're cool. but anyway, that's that's another story. Well, it's a fascinating story because it, it, it's, it just seemed to me, you know, surprising, and I don't mean this in any sort of rude way at all, that, that, that you were so good at something else as well as what you were good at in the first place. I mean, well, and, and, thank you, Tim. And, 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 but, but, but did Ken say, you look so perfect, I want you in my film, had you not been able to sing or dance? I know, I mean, he, he took... I don't know. I mean, he took a great leap of faith because yeah. I met him about another film that wasn't musical and that didn't happen for some reason. I think he couldn't get the rights. But you've got to remember, he was one of the biggest British film directors yeah. at the time. Well, he was, he was going to do a beta. Um, at one point. Oh, um, was he? he, he and, and oh, how interesting. We, we, we went up to, for some reason, he must have lived up in the Lake District he area. Lake District, yeah. yeah. And we went up there, I did. I think Andrew came too. And, and, and we, we, we talked about several scenes and um, I think he wanted Liza Minnelli to do it. Um, mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Yeah, well, these, you know, like the film I met him for. And that's how I met Paul McCartney because he, the film that didn't happen that I met Ken for when I was 17 and a half yeah. uh, was based on a book called The Wishing Tree by William Faulkner, which is about a, a young kind of muse girl and a wizard uh -huh. who travel the world. Um, but that didn't, and he wanted Paul to do the music. So we had a lunch and it was funny because I was, you know, I was 17 years old and the whole thing had happened to me, but I was a huge Beatles fan. I mean, I was like, and Ken rang me and said, will you come and have lunch? Because I'd met him and he said, I want you to come and have lunch with Paul. And I thought, I, I don't know whether I yeah. can go and sit yeah, yeah. politely opposite Paul McCartney, who was like my hero. You Do know, you remember where that lunch was? I don't. It would have been, well, Ken, bless his heart, not with us anymore, but he lived in Notting Hill Gate, so I'm guessing it was around there. But it was a public restaurant, so people would have gone, Yeah, cool, but we look, had like a private... That's Twiggy and Paul. No. And... <laughs> or probably more like that's Paul McCartney <laughs> and Twiggy. But, um, no, wow. it was amazing, but how you meet people. And then Paul and I stayed friends, and then when he met darling Linda, he rang me and said, you know, I've got this new girlfriend and she hasn't got, she doesn't know many girls in England. Right. And I said, I'll take her shopping. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like to shop? <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, I, I don't like to shop. <laughs> no, no, my husband hates shopping. Except bookshops. But, I love bookshops. Uh, and um, so Linda and I became huge. You know, she was one of my best friends. Lovely, sweet lady. No, I, I did know her a bit. Um, she, mm. she rang me up once and said, 
because I knew Mike McGear quite well when I worked with the scaffold, Paul's, oh, yeah. Paul's brother. And yeah, um, Mike. Mike was saying, oh, our, our kid's dog has just had puppies. And I said, well, I need a puppy companion to my boxer. And, oh. you know, and said, oh, well, I'll, I'll see if they've got one spare. And I forgot all about it. And then I got a phone call from this American sounding lady um, saying, is that Tim Rice? I, I, it's it's uh, Linda McCartney here. And I said, who? I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I thought it was somebody having me on. Anyway, it wasn't. It really was <laughs> Linda. And I went round to collect collect this dog. Went round to their house in St John's Wood and had a very nice. It was a sort of Labrador cross or something. And um, it was, I I called her Fido because my other dog was Bonzo at the time. So I had Bonzo. Yeah, because they Bonzo and they Fido. all they all they always have had dogs. They were dog yeah. dog dog mad ho- dog and horse mad. Well, you know, Martha, Martha, my dear. Yes, I met Martha. I met Martha. I met Martha. I knew Martha very well. (laughs) (laughs) She was gorgeous. She was huge. She was an old English sheepdog. I mean, she was about the size of St. Albans. She was absolutely massive. Yeah, if she tried to sit on your lap, and I was tiny, she'd like squash me. (laughs) Martha, my dear. Martha, my dear. Okie doke. Well, it's been an absolute joy. As I said earlier, I could go on chatting to you all day. Well, it's I mean, maybe I would... we should do part two. Okay, part two. <laughs> all right, let's start now. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, it's, like, it's so nice to see you again, even only on Zoom. And I, I yeah, hope I, I see you I'm... in the flesh before too long. Well, maybe in London. Do you? Do, are you ever up in London? Yes, or... occasionally. Yes, yes. Maybe we can organise a little lunch. It'd well, be lovely to see you and catch up. It'd be great. Anyway, thank you so much. My, my pleasure and honour. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Lots of love. And to you. Mm, bye, bye. Bye. Well, that was fabulous. What stories. Oh, I, I love hearing all the backstories to songs and musicals and books that are part of our lives. And to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I could have gone and chatting to Tim for hours and hours. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I send you all lots of love. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production.